You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, February 2nd, which was about a week and a half ago or so, was Groundhog Day. And whether I watch the film or not each year, my mind is haunted around this time of year once again by the, the film Groundhog Day. Um, which I'm assuming most of you have seen at least some point in your life, but to remind you or to tell you the plot if you haven't is a story about a weatherman, a big shot weatherman from Pittsburgh named Phil Connors, who's played by Bill Murray. And uh, at the beginning of this story, he's going to travel with a producer and and a cameraman to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover the groundhog on Groundhog Day. It's funny because he's a weatherman going to to see the groundhog. Um, But while he's there in Punxsutawney, he has this sort of twilight zone experience where he wakes up the next day and it's Groundhog Day again. And he's reliving uh, day after day, the same day over and over again, and it's always Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And he's the only person there who knows what's going on. Everybody else, when they wake up the next day, it's as if they're living it for the first time, but he knows what's going on. Well, we see throughout the film uh, a sort of character progression with Phil uh, where he has several different motivations in life, the things that he wants and the ways that he goes about getting them. He has different motivations. At first, he's driven by what other people think about him. He's a sort of celebrity weatherman from the kind of big city compared to Punxsutawney, which is, you know, sort of backwaters hillbilly in his mind, uh, but he's in Pittsburgh, which is still only kind of middle tier as far as news markets go, and he tells one of his colleagues, for your information, there's a major network interested in me. And so you see that he is, is driven by other people's uh, uh, approval, needing uh, other people to like him. You know, despite all his big talk, he's still kind of a people pleaser. And once he realizes he's reliving Groundhog Day and he comes to grips with it, we find that he's motivated by something else. He no longer needs to sort of seek people's approval because they're not going to remember the next day. So he just, what he does is he basically goes to the, the basest uh, uh, of motivations and takes advantage of the situation that he's in. And uh, because, you know, he's stuck after all, and he resorts to using people for his desires each new day. It's almost like, you know, Atlantic City or Las Vegas at its worst. He, he robs banks, he goes out on cheap dates and dresses up like a cowboy and all kinds of weird things like this. But toward the middle or middle end of the film, Phil changes one more time, and he begins to long for relationship. He gets all of that out of his system, and now he really wants relationship. But he's been self-centered his whole life, so he's sort of an amateur in this department. 
he tries to strike up a romance with the producer, Rita, and he goes out on all sorts of dates with her each new Groundhog Day. Of course, she doesn't remember the dates from the days before, but he does, and he learns a little bit about her each time and tries harder and harder uh, to win her love, and he strikes out every time. There's this great montage where she slaps him over and over again at the end of each date because he continues to fail, uh, no matter how, tr how hard he tries, because she can... She can smell the rat, that he's basically manipulating her. So Phil goes from seeking other people's approval to using them to finally trying to manipulate Rita. Those are his motivations. And Jesus says something quite similar about our spirituality in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he doesn't talk about all three of those motivations, but he talks about two of them in terms of diagnosing our spiritual motivations. And I'll get to the third in just a minute because I think it's actually relevant to our society in this day and age. But as I said, at least two of them are there in terms of our spiritual motivations. Let's take a look at the first, and it comes out right out of the gates in uh, Matthew chapter 6, in this passage where he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount about spirituality, uh, uh, our spiritual disciplines. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Basically, don't be spiritual merely for what others will think of you. And uh, he gives three examples related to this point. First, he says, don't give to the needy for the sake of what others are going to think about you, that they might think that you're a good person for giving to the needy. Don't allow that to be your primary or sole motivation for giving. He also says, don't pray uh, fancy, long, public prayers merely to impress others. And finally, don't make a public display of your fasting. In other words, we shouldn't engage in spiritual disciplines uh, primarily motivated by the horizontal dimension, that is, thinking about other people and actually forgetting about God. And secondly, he says, so this is the second point that he addresses, uh, where he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so what he's saying is that God will actually hear your prayers when you use plain and simple speech. You don't need to think that you have to impress him with your words, whether it's through verbosity, through too many words, or by you know, trying to use maybe like a, affecting a sort of King James version of your prayers. What he's saying is don't try to manipulate God into loving you to do what you want him to do, either by these words, by the content, or the type of words, or the amount of words. And look, this is actually kind of good news. If you're anything like me, who's someone on occasion when uh, having to pray with other people, I feel like an incompetent prayerer. You know, usually when I feel that way, whether it's one other person or a, a staff meeting or in church, what's happening is I'm actually getting anxious about what the other people in the room are, are going to think about me and not even thinking about God, really. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. Just talk to the Heavenly Father in plain, simple language. That's totally fine. And, and the Father will hear you when you speak that way. So don't be like Phil Connors. At least in these two respects, 
Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6 in terms of being overly concerned about what other people are thinking or trying to, to get an angle with God. You don't need to do that. You can speak to him, you may speak to him plainly and simply. And Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer actually as an example of this. Remember that I said that there's a third spiritual motivation problem for our day that relates to what we saw in Phil Connors, but isn't necessarily here in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, this is when, remember, Phil came to grips with being stuck in Groundhog Day. And actually, this is why Groundhog Day is such a good movie, is it's a lot like our lives. Metaphorically speaking, at least, our lives are highly repetitive and monotonous. And because of that, we're often seeking transcendence when it comes to spirituality. We seek things or practice that will take us out of, or seem to take us out of the ordinary, to escape the monotony, the sort of treachery of the everyday repetition of the habits of life. This is why so-called New Age or Eastern mysticism, or you could even say secular self-improvement programs or spiritualities are so popular and have been for some time. Because when it comes to being spiritual in our modern world, uh, we're very private and highly individualized. Whether it's um, some sort of Eastern or New Age practice, like uh, chanting or breathing techniques, or even aphorisms and cliches that we tell each other and ourselves, or reading materials that aim to make us feel good about ourselves and fulfilled. But more often than that, at least for Christians, it can look like coming to church or coming to God for our own selfish purposes. We basically consume spirituality and religion to satisfy our own feelings and for what we get out of the equation. Church and God in in that scenario just become a sort of spiritual commodity to be consumed that we think we can use to fulfill our own purposes. Like I said, Jesus doesn't talk about this one in our passage, but it's just as big of a problem in our day, perhaps the biggest, very similar to how we can also seek the approval of others or do spiritual things to try to manipulate or influence God. We can also use God for our own escape, longing for the transcendence. And this has been our our original problem since the garden. Remember that the first act of sinfulness was was an act of consumption. And ever since, we've been trying to fulfill our own appetites and desires. But look, here's the the main point. This is what Jesus Christ was getting at in Matthew chapter 6. The passage isn't simply a list of do-nots or warnings. Really at the heart of what he's talking about here is he's emphasizing the point that God the Father is a person. The main thing that he's getting at, if you can get beyond the do nots and the warnings, is an emphasis that God the Father is a person. And as a result, our spirituality ought to be a sort of about relationship. I mean, just, you know, think about yourself for a moment. Have you ever had someone, or you could just imagine someone doing a nice thing for you, only to come to realize that it actually wasn't about doing a nice thing for you, they were just seeking the approval of others 
around them, and you became a sort of uh, a means to their end. I've had a, a similar kind of experience with gift giving in my life. When people will give me gifts, there are a few individuals in my life and the history of my life who've had a pattern of giving me gifts, and I've come to realize that it's not actually about the recipient or the gift, it's about the gift giver and what they're getting out of the equation. And often they don't even realize what's going on. Or you can just think about being with someone physically in their presence, and you realize that they're actually not there. Their mind or emotions is somewhere else altogether. And we see this very clear in our day with iPhones and smartphones and devices all the time. We're so often with people, sometimes even on a date. I've seen people on dates out at restaurants and they're both looking at phones. They're not actually with each other. They're seeking escape and using the, the, the date in a weird and perverted way. And I'm saying that we often approach God in the same way when we're seeking transcendence. So here's the bottom line about uh, what Jesus Christ is talking about with spirituality. Our Heavenly Father is a real person who desires to be in relationship with us. And so a right relationship with God is at the heart of genuine spirituality, the same way that we and other people want to be in relationship. There's one final phase of development for Phil Connors that I've intentionally not mentioned to this point. At the end of Groundhog Day, after Phil strikes out so many times with Rita, he finally gives up in trying to be in a relationship. He gives up on seeking approval. He gives up on using people. He gives up in trying to manipulate the Ritas of his life. But he doesn't, by giving up, spiral into a sort of uh, into a sense of hopelessness. He seems to instead have a sort of conversion. He begins to notice the people around him in Punxsutawney, and he takes an interest in them, and he begins to even serve some of them. We see that there's a boy each Groundhog Day who's destined, at the same time in the same place, to fall out of a tree. And Phil notices that pattern, so he goes there every day and he catches the boy so that he won't either crash to his death or break bones badly. And the funny, the humor in when he catches him each time, the boy looks at him and runs off. And he says, you never thank me, you never thank me. There are some old ladies who get a flat tire at the same spot in a road, and he helps them to fix the flat tire. But even more poignantly, there's an old homeless man who's destined to die every Groundhog Day. And Phil tries to rescue him, knowing that each day he's, basically, he's going to die. And it's a, it's a failed effort. And yet, he's, here he is, still attempting to rescue that homeless man. He even begins to enjoy life on its own terms. He studies the piano and becomes really good at it. He learns ice sculpting with a chainsaw. Just because he's having fun and enjoying life and serving people. And these become his new daily routines. Actually, the writer of the film, if you view the extras in the DVD, said, I don't know, it could be months that he's reliving Groundhog Day, or it could be a million years. <laughs> and this is what's going on for ages. Finally, one Groundhog Day is able to be in right relationship with Rita. After all of that, 
He stops using her and trying to manipulate her, and instead he's just being himself around her. His converted self and his motivations are now seemingly genuine, and she actually falls in love with Phil. And the cycle of Groundhog Day ends there, and he wakes up the next day, and it's February 3rd, and and Rita remembers everything that happened the day before. I wonder what your motivations and intentions are when it comes to God. Another way to ask this is, why are you here today? Or do you, how do you normally go about practicing your spirituality, whatever it is? What are your motivations in this department? Is it possible that your prayers, your Bible reading, your church attendance, or whatever your practice is, even if you're not a Christian, maybe it's something else, are they motivated by people-pleasing? In other words, are you more afraid of man than of God? Do you do these things because of what others will think of you? Or do you think spiritual practices are some sort of game used to, to trick God, to manipulate him, like he's a sort of genie in the bottle or a pagan deity, and if you just use the right words or the right activities, he'll do what you want him to do. Or like so many of us, are you in the 21st century trap of consuming spirituality for transcendence? Are church and God yet another product in the marketplace for your consumption? There's a completely different way There's a completely different way than all of that. And it looks like this. Jesus Christ died for you so that you might have access to God the Father. And Jesus Christ rose from you, rose for you, that you might have eternal life with God the Father. And although you were an enemy of God, he has loved you through his Son, and now he wants, to be in right, wants you to be in right relationship with him and with others. Just hear these words from Paul from uh, 2 Corinthians. What I'm about to read to you is, is, is the groundwork, the basis out of which all our spirituality ought to spring. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me read that again. This is the basis of our spirituality. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. I mean, just think of the old Phil. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the excellent news that ought to be the basis, as I said, of our spirituality. We who were once dead have been made alive through Jesus Christ. Now we are able to be in right relationship with the Father. Full stop. So we're now free to pray like we're talking with a real person. We're now free to give like we are serving him and his people. 
This is true spirituality. And our motivations are grounded in the good news of what the object of our affection has done for us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.